0: How was everyone's new year? Very well, thank you.
2: I didn't do much. I was sitting at home watching... Well, I was playing Scrabble until Jeff told me that Fish was playing Gamehenge at (laughs) Madison Square Garden. So I spent $40 to watch about a half hour of Fish playing their old mythological Gamehenge set before I got bored of it and did not make it to midnight with uh, (laughs) Gamehenge.
3: How the times have changed. Yep, getting bored by midnight. Did you actually get bored by watching the set? I haven't watched it yet.
2: Yeah, I did. It wasn't the exact same thing as the original Game Henge's. And I don't know what I was expecting. It obviously wasn't. Game Henge was a time and a place in the early 90s for a 20-year-old college kid to enjoy. It's not for a 43-year-old man in 2023. Completely different thing.
3: Some may beg to differ. Jackson being one of them. (laughs) Shots fired already. Shots fired already.
0: It is a youthful idea that 60-year-old men are now playing 30 years later. I mean, I wonder how fresh it is for them to to do that. I wonder if they think it's kind of ridiculous at this point.
3: Well, I mean, there has to be some reason that they shelved it for 20 years, right? 30? 30. 30. Yeah. So and yeah, it's definitely the thing that's dreamed up by a high 20-year-old. You know, it like doesn't come out of an adult brain. So it is interesting it would be interesting to hear how they feel about that stuff now.
0: Yeah, well, I guess if if you're putting it that way, it's like every 20 or 30 years then it is like a little nugget for the fans. So they probably do take some enjoyment in, in giving that to the, the folks who are going to gonna still enjoy. I know Jackson, our friend Jackson from college, had, was extremely stoked that they played it, because he was there.
3: Yeah, well, they they made a whole production out of it. I think they had like, uh, John, you actually saw it. I haven't, I haven't really seen it yet, but there was kind of like puppeteers and actors, and it was a whole kind of theatrical performance around this rock opera kind of set.
2: The, exactly, which was novel and New and I suppose made it worthwhile on their end and made it worthwhile in one sense for me to watch. But it also made it not like the original Game Henges because part of the charm of the original Game Henge was that Trey narrated to you, which was it was funny because you know we're all adults, but he's narrating as if he's telling like a bedtime story to like a a three year old. Like that 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 humor of the situation was built in. And, and And that was great at the time, but this was different, and the one hand, the only reason to do it, and the only reason to get excited was specifically it was a reminiscent
0: nostalgic
2: yes, it was pure nostalgia
3: I actually haven't watched it yet. We had some friends over and had a pretty normal New year's where we gave the kids a fake ball drop at ten p m at least the younger of them, my older daughter, stayed awake, and then uh friends stayed over you know till well into the night not quite midnight and then yeah yeah we we made it there but you know crawling across the finish line kind of thing (laughs) it's funny on the west coast you get to
0: see the ball drop at nine like i mean they they do the new york thing live so we watched that with the girls and uh i mean because we have a newborn we didn't do anything like we didn't even get dressed up and then we stayed up and watched the midnight one and then went to sleep after that
3: what What's the midnight one on the West Coast? What happens at midnight on the West Coast? They replay the one that we watched at 9. <laughs> 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 uh, but
0: moving away from New Year's, Happy New Year's to everyone. Uh, this is the second uh, song of, of 2024, and there's a little bit of a twist in this one because Neil is uh, moving to New Jersey, so... I decided to grab uh, two of my favorite people to talk music with from way back. And you may remember them from uh, last year uh, as they were both guested separately, uh, Mr. John Shafransky and Mr. Jeff Gross. Jeff and John, thanks for, thanks for coming back.
3: Cheers! Cheers! I, I sense that you you wanted New Jersey people to give Neil a springboard into his new state, and uh, flattered to be here, of course, and looking forward to wrestling the show away from you into some weird directions. Now that it's two against one,
0: <laughs> it's true. I'm I'm
3: like I feel like I'm on enemy to te- not enemy
0: territory, but, but foreign, un- unknown territory. Let's there's too much weight behind foreign at this point in time so we'll say (laughs) unknown territory with uh with you two but also very familiar because we've spoke music together uh many hours it is funny y'all brought up fish because when i was thinking of like oh what am i going to talk to these guys about before the song i saw this headline artist turning 60 and trey anastasio was one of those in 2024 so neil and i do a game it's a little uh, childish, but it's like Mary, Boof, Kill. Uh, we say Boof instead of fuck because we're a family-friendly podcast. Wink, wink. But <laughs> you got a lot of kids listening to the show, Josh. <laughs> I did find out my mom listens more than I thought she did, and I don't, don't know <laughs> oh. how I feel about that. Um, <laughs> so I went through the list and I found three that because it's it's basically guys or bands. And musicians that were like came to popularity in the early 90s, right? You know, your Pearl Jams, your uh, Smashing Pumpkins, your Fish, your like Warrant, your, yeah, there was a lot of people from Warrant, your Soul Asylum, <laughs> people like that. So, <laughs> Warrant. I know, I know. <laughs> and so I picked three to do a Mary Booth Kill segment here, and those three are Eddie Vedder tom morello and lenny kravitz oof so who wants to take this first it's a
2: no-brainer eddie vetter is definitely marriage material he will stand by you he's a trustworthy guy he's a solid guy that voice is solid yeah yeah comforting stable. comforting strong 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 family stable family man If I was at all possible that I could put sexuality into the equation, I suppose I would say, boof, Lenny Kravitz, but obviously I can't actually put any sexuality into the equation. (laughs) That is not the point, yes. (laughs) So I would kill Lenny Kravitz, which leaves Tom Morello.
3: So you're taking Tom Morello to your bed?
2: Absolutely.
3: All right, all right. (laughs) See, I thought it was obvious. I agreed that uh, Eddie Vedder been committed to the same bandmates for all those years. Yeah, I yeah, mean, how right. old are they? A hundred? We just said they're sixty, but they're actually a hundred. Y- yeah. And, yeah.
2: <laughs> in in rock and, years.
3: Yeah, exactly. And uh I thought that Lenny Kravitz was the obvious um sex icon out of this group. I, and then you got a part with Tom Morello. Um although I'm not thrilled about it because I, I think underneath all the uh hard nosed, driving rage rock. Uh, I think he's actually a soft and kind man. You know what? I saw him escorting his grandmother to a local
0: election in the valley one time. So yes, you know, it was just like, this is a <laughs> civil minded human being. But I agree with you, Jeff. I'm gonna kill in the name of Tomarella.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and, nice work. All right, all right, so real quick though, on this list, was Keanu Reeves because he has a band and, and no offense to that band kudos to everyone who plays music but should Keanu Reeves be listed on a musicians who turn 60 list with Eddie Vedder Courtney Love Trey Anastasio Lenny Kravitz
3: <laughs> you're an actor who plays music I mean obviously not yeah, I, obviously <laughs> he should not be on that list he's he's an actor I mean, he might be a good musician, but nobody would put him as a musician first before an actor.
2: Well, it's forgivable as long as they don't try and rely on their fame and sort of play into their movie stardom, into their rock stardom. Like, if they just want to be
0: in a band and and do their thing, that's fine. I just thought about this, because there's been plenty of musicians who've gone into acting and been successful. More than I can name. How many have gone the opposite way? Now off the top of my head, I can't think of anyone.
3: You know who comes to mind that I think is respected as a musician is Steve Martin, who like his stage show is kind of, it's a little bit more of like, kind of like a comedy slash music stage show. But what I've seen of it is like he's, he's a, he plays banjo and sings. Yeah. I think he gets some like pretty legitimate praise for his music
0: that's a great call i think if you were to say that you could also kind of say well adam sandler as well i don't know if comedians really fit them that's like a different form of entertainer i feel like um even though they are both actors in their own right but they started out comedy but maybe maybe splitting theirs no i think you're right
2: i think i i love your point about steve martin that makes my point because as steve martin as a musician he purposefully downplays his, uh, he does not want his acting fame to have anything to do with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. So, kudos to Steve Martin. And even though we love you, Keanu, you don't belong on the list. So, <laughs> on that note, <laughs> you are listening to Pod Gave Rock and Roll to you. And this week, we're going back, way back, to discuss hank williams and his drifting cowboys "Love Sick blues a 1949 single written by irving mills and hank williams and composed by cliff friend produced by fred rose and released on mgm
1: i got a feeling of the blues whole oh heart since my baby said goodbye lord
0: i don't well, I know it's not considered rock and roll, and this is a rock and roll podcast, but I don't care. You know, I feel like I've known this song my whole life. I've, I've definitely mentioned my grandparents on my mom's side were big watchers of TNN, which you guys may not know was the Nashville Network, the precursor to country music television, or CMT. And I spent a lot of time at their place, so I assume I would have heard this first there. I don't know what kind of inter- iteration of it, but... I got into Hank a little a little later. I mean, he was around growing up, kind of in the background. And there's a lot of Hank songs that I listen to more than this. I know this is probably his most popular, but I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry is one of I think is one of the best songs ever written. Ramblin' Man, Move It On Over, I Saw the Light, Lost Highway, Long Gone Lonesome Blues, to name a few. And I do feel bad for not picking one of those because... He re- wrote those, he did, not, he did not write these songs, and I just have a lot of respect for him as a songwriter. But, you know, when I started playing guitar, this was a song I gravitated to because it's not as straightforward as most of his other ones. It's got this weird vaudevillian flow while maintaining that country vibe that really puts you in the song and that like lovesick mindset he's talking about. I mean, vibe only. I, I, you don't even need to hear the words, I don't think. And if you can, if you have the accent and can sing it, it, it is a, it's a treat. So it's, it's very similar to Long Gone Lonesome Blues in that way. Like he just really hangs on the note and the melody. And both of those things just allow you to lose yourself in the song. I, I like to comment on like how fun songs are. And we've done a lot of those in the last few episodes. But this one is like more of an experience. And I think that's what, like, the best music does. Like, I, there's not a whole lot of songs I can say, man, that was an exp- it's an experience every time I hear the song.
2: Well, my background with Hank Williams is that I I have still not dove in, into him as much as I should. I'm ashamed to say I have listened to him enough to have a... the greatest appreciation I possibly could for him, I hold him up as a God of American music in a certain mythological place. He's like an archetypal figure for me. I, I know I'm on so I can cry really well. I know The Lost Highway really well. I um, think he has an amazing voice and was a great songwriter. He's the quintessential guy at the quintessential moment of country music, when country music was still country music in its own right. It was not defining itself against being anti-cosmopolitan. It was just smart guys who happened to live in the country who were just being honest, just writing perfect songs. And he's just, you know, he's the central figure of that entire thing. I understand all that. I, I never became an expert. I know very few of his songs by heart. Yeah. I can play this one on piano now, which is really fun, (laughs) and I'm looking forward to getting into him more, thanks to you.
3: Yeah, I have to echo a a similar sentiment, but even earlier on the path. Hank Williams, to me, is always kind of name I've known, and I don't know if I could have put a song with the name before this. So I was excited by this song choice mostly because it, it kind of leveraged me into the research project of filling in this important gap of knowledge in kind of my musical, my personal musical history. I've got to echo John's sentiment about the voice. His voice shines through, and even in a song that we're going to dissect that he didn't write, I, I think the voice is kind of the shining star of this song. But um, mostly, it's just a big thank you to you, Josh, for sending me on what has been a uh, pretty fun journey over the last week, learning about his life as well, which I, I hope we have a chance to get into talking about him as a person, too.
0: Oh, for sure. But let's just let's piggyback <laughs> off that, because I, I did write down my favorite part of the song. And I think if you if you like this song or like him in general, you have to like his voice, I, I'm sure it's a turnoff to some people. It's definitely not something you're used to hearing on a daily basis. It's not even similar to a lot of, like, the Appalachia stuff. I mean, he's from Alabama. But if you're familiar with any of, like, the older country guys that yodeled, like Jimmy Rogers being the the father of country music, I mean, he's just a straight yodel. I mean, like, if you listen to it, you're just like, whoa, dude. Maybe calm down on the yodel. But (laughs) (laughs) Hank just does it better for me, it's more aesthetically pleasing. I'm not somebody who just loves a yodel in general. The perfect example, I think, in this song is... Daddy, such a beautiful dream. And then, like, the, he kind of does it more subtly with all over. And then that resignation and heart rate kind of comes down. It seems... you know, The way his voice flows... Really m- mixes with the, f- the melodic flow of the song, which is pretty unique. You don't hear a lot of songs that are just this many sevenths, and the way he's able to kind of manipulate his voice over that adds an element that takes this song into another, you know, realm. I, I-, I feel like, vocally.
1: Lord, I love to hear her when she called me sweet. Daddy, such a beautiful dream. I hate to thank it all. To-
3: yeah, I have to agree with that, and I mean, not begrudgingly. Obviously, it, it's a great point. It's the the uh, the yodel in particular, the way he able he's able to modulate kind of between the octaves with accuracy, but with style, is one of those things that only a really skillful singer is able to execute. And I, I don't necessarily mean like classically trained skillful, but somebody who is practiced or just has a natural ability to hit notes on pitch yeah that's put in uh, hours it does not seem like something that would be easy to do
2: i I was gonna say something quite similar to what you said which is that the way i was like framing it in my mind was the, the the yodel seems to permeate every line of the song every word of the song whether he's actually yodeling or not it's sort of it loosens his throat, and it gives a sort of ethereal quality to the vocal the whole time. It, it's not like just the yodel when it's most pronounced at the end of the lines, when he when he actually yodels, so to speak. It, it yeah. just makes it, like you said, a really wavy melody that goes up and down.
3: Yeah, I know what you mean. It's kind of like when he holds a longer note, it's this almost like less forced vibrato in his voice it's like a subtle almost under the under the surface vibrato that is kind of always there yeah Um, what
0: i always find think of it as is you don't hear and we've talked about this on the on the podcast before there's not a lot of guitar solos in music at this time in, in 1949 the yodel like when he yodels it's almost like his his way of throwing a guitar lick in there and it just adds another musical element of the song. And I guess if you're going back historically, it, do, it is drawing some from kind of the middle of nowhere, Appalachia singers that, where they were just singing acapella and people had to do different things with their voice and they had basically had to do music with the voice. And that's kind of where this is all coming from.
2: It's kind of a way of stepping out of singing in your own everyday voice in an authentic way. It frees you to become musical with your vocal and to leave yourself behind, but not in a way that you are now impersonating some
0: other singer who you already like. He's, He's definitely drawing a lot from Jimmy Rogers, which would have been hard not to for singers at this time because Jimmy Roberts was such a prevalent country music figure. But you hit on a point that being from the South, And when I hear people sing, I can tell if they're putting it on or not. So this guy is not putting, you know, there's nothing forced. There's nothing, there's not not a facade there. This is who this guy is. And I do love how the vocal comes. I said it's not fun, and I'd stick by that. But And it's very sad. A lot of his stuff is extremely sad. But there is a, a certain playful element to it that he throws in with his voice. You're not super sad listening to the songs, put it that way. And if you think of
3: the content, you may maybe should be. I'm, I'm wondering who those shots were just fired at, Josh. The, who's who's putting it? Who's putting on their fake country these days? Is that shots fired at John Fogarty?
0: <laughs> you know what, our old co-host Jonathan, we we would because he, he's from the South as well. We'd always say Fogarty's the only one who could pull it off. That is not from the South. Love it. Even though, I do have come around on Chris Stapleton. He's, he's, a, he's a good vocalist, but he just sometimes leans into it. <laughs> and you're just like, not needed, dude. Not needed. I understand a lot of people love that. I will point out a quote, because the, the producer said, was really bothered by the way he was recording this. And he was like, the meter's off, the meter's off. Like, um, I can go get a cup of coffee and come back, and you're still on this one note. It's too much. He's like, you know, I just want to find a note I like. I just want to hang on to it for as long as I can. (laughs) That's
1: awesome.
3: This will just speak to the research project that was my experience of this week of learning (laughs) about Hank Williams. I mean, obviously born in Alabama... Um, born with a rare spinal condition that I've only heard on, like, television ads called spinal bifida. And, like, you yeah. know, remember those old commercials? It's like, do you have oh, yeah. spina bifida? I was like, does anyone really have <laughs> spina bifida? So a guy's got a lifetime of pain. Obviously, much more well-documented is his painkiller addiction, alcoholism, and how unreliable he was constantly yes being hired and fired by radio stations, hired and fired by his band. And I just couldn't help but, and this is where I'm going to have to drop in my uh, biases, but I couldn't help but think of the parallels to the early life of my current favorite artist, Jason Isbell, (laughs) who's also born in Alabama, also was so unreliable because of his alcoholism that he was kicked out of his band, Drive-By Truckers. Thankfully, in and, and uh, thankfully for all of us, you know, he famously gets clean and continues yeah. to write amazing music. But Hank Williams ends up having this kind of rocky, painful life and dying as a 29-year-old in the back of a car on, I, I believe. I think I read it was on a New Year's Day, fifty-three. Yeah. Does that sound right? Yep,
0: yep. That's a sad thing. And the, and the funny thing about this song being so independable and a country music icon. This was his first number one. This brought him to the Grand Ole Opry. It had been a long time coming. They would not invite him because he was just kind of known for all of the, the pills and the drinking and the unreliability and just being kind of a rough guy. And, you know, got a standing ovation, and then he was just accepted by the the community after that for the rest of his uh, short life, you know. And he became known for this song, even though, like we said at the beginning, I mean, there's so many, so many other songs that I think are now i would think at this point are more well known than this like you know hey good looking uh jambalaya honky-tonk and moving on over just because they were covered in later years and but became popular that way i do want to bring it back to melodically john you mentioned something you said this was at a time when country music it wasn't like anti-cosmopolitan jeff you texted us and said hey you know this is a cover song and i was like really but if you look at the people involved in terms of writing and producing this song, you're you're talking about the melody <laughs> was composed by a guy in Tin Pan Alley in New York uh, named Cliff Friend, who also wrote the theme for the Looney Tunes called The Merry-Go-Round Broke Down. And if, once you know that, you're like, oh, of course it's the same guy. Like it just has, it twists and turns like that. Not to get t- too super like, nerdy about it but the lot of sevenths you know a lot of major third there's five parts before it gets back to the first part again i mean it just keeps going in a different direction and all of them are equally as good as as the one before and it it just keeps you engaged and interested because you don't know what is about to happen in the song
2: he also starts the next
0: line at the end of the line before it. Yes. Often. Neil would be better at this, but there's in this song there's time wise he's coming in on like the the three or the four. It's just a song full of right. like, unexpected twists and turns to, to use that, that phrase again. Now now out of all of the parts, which one do you think sticks out to, to you guys?
2: I'm in love, I'm in love with a beautiful gal. That's what's the matter with me. Yes. Which yes. also is the, that's the cosmopolitan part of the song. That That's the part that, when I heard that, it made me think of Emmett Miller, who did cut this song in 1922 in New York City. Yes. With Jimmy Dorsey and Tony Dorsey, like, which is just a horn band. There's no acoustic guitar on it or anything like that. It's...
0: Yeah, but it has the the bones, right? I mean, the bones it's not a right. complete song that it is when it gets to him, but it has the bones there and it does sound that's like that's not like vaudeville Yeah, I don't know, broad, I don't know if you would right. call Broadway in the 20s feel to it. Even though at heart the lyric is a blues kind of country blues lyric, but the melody is not really at all. It, there there's something more like you said, more cosmopolitan about it. Right for me the the one that stands out is just when he goes to the light heart, it seems that's such an unexpected it, it's a major three hits right there up until that point he's kind of keeping with with the with kind of a common chord structure there's one there's four there's you know five and then he hits that major three and then he goes into that I've grown so used to you somehow. I, it, and that is more like a rollicking... The, I would say the, the part you're talking, John, well, I'm in love, that's, that sounds like more of a traditional bridge. Well, I'm in love,
2: right. I'm in love
1: with a beautiful gal. That's what's the matter with me. Well, I'm in love, I'm in love with a beautiful
2: gal. But like, I learned it on piano, and I got every part down but for the life of me i could never actually play them in the order that hank williams (laughs) plays them i never remember which part comes when
0: but the earlier ones like the emmett miller one you're talking about they don't start with i got a feeling called the blues it starts right he starts
2: with that vaudeville line yeah
0: right i'm in love and maybe that having that little bridge at the beginning worked better for i think it was a play oh Ernest was what it was written written for oh. originally. I couldn't find oh. uh, the woman Elsie uh, something uh, had recorded it first. I couldn't find a version on, online.
3: I'm curious right. about another kind of, like, situating this in, in history kind of idea. The idea of blues in general as kind of, like, a metaphor for sadness. Like, how far along... Like where does that come along in the history of music? Is blues like, well, well, blues is like W.C. Handy it was kind of first guy to like kind
0: of start putting it down in like the composition sheets, uh, and that's early, you know, twentieth century. That's like nineteen ten in, in that area somehow. I would say that this song, because it has that ten pan alley stuff in the twenties, and because it has all these sevenths and sharps. You're, it, it gives it a more jazz element and it there were two such th- th- songs that it really reminded me of there's blue eyes crying in the rain and there's another song hank williams did god i can't help it if i'm still in love with you which is a beautiful song but also very similar just chords they're playing in it and of course i looked it up this week and it's the same producer this guy um uh, for red rose who was hank's uh, was Hank's guy. I mean, he was his producer, you know, throughout. But this is another Tin Pan Alley guy who came from Nashville, was in Tin Pan Alley, and then he went back to Nashville and started one of their first publishing companies with Roy Acuff. And he, he and Hank were one of the first two people inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. So they're, they're basically establishing a sound. And the fact that this guy, first inductee in, in Country Music Hall of Fame, had that timpan alley background is something i did not know and it's something that's really interesting to kind of hear because there's there's more of a jazz element in the song that than i was um, than i remembered
2: i want to make two points there one is that if your listeners will recall my last appearance on the podcast <laughs> i made the strong case <laughs> that rock and roll was a form of jazz And right now, in this context, in rebuttal slightly to what you just said, Josh, I would also like to point out that, in my view, blues is a form of jazz. And that sort of tin pan alley sound, that vaudeville horn band sound that the earlier versions of this song has, that's um, a style of blues that is, it's a jazz blues that predates any sort of Delta blues musician like mm. Robert Johnson or some. They, they, those guys. Robert Johnson was covering songs
0: like this on acoustic guitar. That's not necessarily true. I mean, Charlie Patton is. It was around in the teens and, and the 20s before this. And he was, I mean, he's the guy that most of those blues guys learned music from. And he never left the plantation in Clarksdale, Mississippi. So I... I don't know how on the money that is, but yeah, I don't hear Delta Blues in this song. Lord, at I all. No
1: I would cry. do me, do you She's got that kind of love in Lord, I love to hear her when she calls me sweet.: day.
2: To Jeff's point, the original question, I think you were more asking about the actual concept of the blues.
3: Yeah, not not exactly. Is that true? Thank you for the uh, musical historiography, Josh. My question was (laughs) about the actual using of the word blues as a metaphor for sad. If like how far along Ah. in the history of that usage this was coming up, because it seems like probably not that much older than this, right? this was like kind of like a popular concept almost like a pop concept
0: again that would be hard to to say because blues music comes from the fields and and plantations and stuff like you know how far back that goes to where they using the word blues like when they were singing in the cotton fields i i don't know i i know it existed in 1900 so you know they were doing blues songs back then now Chord structure and what 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 became blues music I don't know but the word blues as, as something that denoted sadness I would I would guess that goes back further than we think
3: Yeah you're probably right
0: I think
2: that it's a shortening of the idea of blue devils were a literally a demon that was dragging you down and making you sad but i don't know enough about that history but you know yeah. the duke blue devils they're named after that's the origin of the word blues was blue devils
0: let's go back to this uh real quick now he did as emmett miller and there's another guy rex griffin who had recorded it uh in the 30s i think or later in the 20s they used jazz a uh, jazz musician's as is kind of the the musical aspect of the songs to interpret the competition composition but Hank wanted to do country so you have Hank Williams senior on vocals you have Claude Baum on mandolin Zeke Turner on electric guitar Jerry bird on steel Louis Ennis on rhythm Tommy Jackson on fiddle and Willie Thaw on bass so i mean it is a straight up country uh lineup here i mean you can tell i mean even from the the rhythm it's too. I mean it feel you have that I'm walking out of a saloon kind of beat <laughs> to to the song. That <laughs> that really sets that mood and then the just bendy, you know, strings and that that Hawaiian kind of steel that's that's given. There's so many elements in this song. I mean, I think that's why I love it so much. It's not just a straight country song. I think if you listen to it, you would think that, but if you dive into it, there's a lot more there. There's, there's blues, there's jazz, there's there's vaudeville, there's a, a performative element uh, to this song, which, I mean, I would say that this is just a better performance because this is by far so much better than any other version of this song. I mean, what, what do you guys think? Do you think it's a better song? Because me personally, I, I don't, like, the lyric is fine, but it's probably the least important part of the song to me. I think the
2: lyric's great. I think it's a... You know a great country lyric I know I thought it was by Hank Williams, which is an attest that's a testament to how good the lyrics are because I thought Hank wrote them until i but also a testament to his performance of the song interpretation true the, the true song. it's all you know what you know what else is interesting, which i was i was I had to wrestle with this is the idea of what a lyric means coming from Hank Williams, as opposed to what a lyric means coming from Rex Griffin, as opposed to what a lyric means coming from Emmett Miller, the minstrel singer in the 1920s in yeah. blackface.
0: That you know. And I, it makes me wonder what the Elsie, I hate that I'm, I don't remember her name, but to hear a woman do this. Elsie Clark. Elsie Clark. You know, I I hate that I couldn't hear that one, because that would be interesting to, to hear her sing it. Is it the same as Emmett Miller? Is it, was she doing it differently? Did he have his own take? Because if you go further, which we will get into the cover, like Patsy Cline, Linda Ronstadt, all these people covered it, but I, but they're kind of doing their take on Hank. I wonder how much Elsie had to do with that originally, since she was the first one to vocally record the song.
3: There are a few lyrics that I really like in this song. The, I'm in love with a beautiful girl, and that's the problem with me, I think is a great <laughs> lyric that, like, I think we all know that feeling like as someone like asking you like what's your problem man and then to answer it with like oh man I'm in love with a beautiful girl and it's this particular situation like you would never admit out loud so that's like that's kind of a funny thing to like play around with and then we have to talk about she'll do me she'll do you
0: This like has to be
3: discussed (laughs) under what he exactly means by do. Is it like ninth grade me saying do or is it like she'll screw you over the way she screwed me over?
0: I I think Mm. it depends on what that meant in the 20s. But I I do think there's one thing about this lyric that with the do me, do you goes into this. This is such a sad sack that is being described (laughs) here. And I'm not sure if sugar daddy had the same connotation that it does today. I did the thing where I was like, all right, is this a good lyric? So I read it because it's hard to really, if you're not hearing all the yodeling and the interpretation of him, if you just go, I got a feeling called the blues. Oh Lord, since my baby said goodbye, Lord, I don't know what I'll do. All I do is sit and sigh. Oh Lord. That last long day, she said goodbye. Well, Lord, I thought I would cry. She'll do me she'll do you. She's got that kind of loving Lord. I love to hear when she calls me sweet daddy such a beautiful dream but when he does the, i'm nobody's sugar daddy now when i read the lyric i'm like okay is this like an older man younger woman is this somebody he's seeing like on the side that he knows has other prospects and he's not happy about that (laughs) That kind of led me down that hole of like is this someone who maybe works in a brothel that he's seeing and he knows she's doing me she's doing you she's got that kind of loving that's very requested (laughs) at her place of work you know i don't know maybe i'm reading too much into it but when i read the lyric like that i was like first of all this guy's kind of pathetic second is this a relationship or is this just something that he obviously thinks more of it than she does but in what context i don't know i don't think you're reading too much into it i think that's sort of the brilliance of,
2: of country music is um great country lyric writers they make you realize that the more details you put in to a song, what you're actually doing is reducing the amount of meanings that the listener can get from it. Yes. Great, great country lyrics tell you exactly enough about these characters so that you can picture them, but not too much about these characters such that you disengage your imagination with the characters. Yes. We can psychoanalyze these two all day long. The line "I'm in love with a beautiful girl." That's what's the matter with me. That's a really interesting line. It it uh, like I I I was thinking about it all day yesterday as to like one one thing that means is that the guy is blaming himself because he obviously based he picked the girl just on her looks right. That's right. one thing he's saying. A- another thing he's saying is that maybe he has no business being with somebody so good looking because she has more options
0: you're right that line does
2: kind of sum it up yeah it's also misogynistic in a sense because it's not fair to you shouldn't be against a girl because she's beautiful like
0: he it makes it sound like it's bad to (laughs) love a beautiful girl which that's not nice either i think Um, it's bad in that it's given him the love i mean it's it's really making him such a sad sack at this point. I mean, there's a lot of self right. out going on. Right, here, you know? right. Uh, right. And like you said, a lot of people probably back then were on the guy's side, like fucking broads. God damn it. <laughs> Pretty ass broads thinking they own the world. Whereas like today you can look at it and be like, well, that's unfair. <laughs> you know? Right. Well, a couple fun facts about this song It did go to number one on the country and western charts for 16 weeks in 1949. And it was at the end of the year. I wish we still had this. But number 24 on the most played songs on the
3: jukebox chart. Uh, (laughs) Which,
0: how you determine that, I don't know.
3: (laughs) Somebody's paying somebody. (laughs) Yeah, there's absolutely no possible way for them to know that. (laughs) Speaking of fun facts, he he ends up being in a long line of of halls of fame. Country Music Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Songwriters oh, yeah. Hall of Fame. He wins a posthumous Pulitzer Prize, actually, for songwriting. But the mind-boggling one, and the only reason I bring this up, is because he's in the Native American Hall of Fame. Does anybody have any insight into why he might have landed in the Native American Hall of Fame? <laughs> because after even reading deeper into it, I couldn't get an answer for this. He's got to have like a, a grandparent that was full-blood would be my guess because
0: i don't think either one of his parents were but uh, as we discussed on text there was a movie made about him which i watched with my girlfriend who didn't know anything about him and after the movie she still felt like she didn't know anything about him (laughs) and that's how good that's my review of uh, i saw the light (laughs) (laughs) hollywood you can't have movies with voices like this and let a fucking actor sing it take after the bohemian rhapsody folks Use the vocals that are there. They're, they're icons because of that. So don't don't fuck around with it.
3: Hollywood um, on notice.
0: <laughs> and that's gonna bring us in to vibe time. Since I am in Hollywood, I will bring us into vibe time. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it differently. Usually we ask the guest, uh, but I will bring us into vibe time in three, two, one. Are you late?
1: Are you late?
3: Are you As nice as that was, I never would have agreed to do this if I knew I didn't get to do vibe time. You get to do it your week. Okay, okay, fine.
0: fine. <laughs> I'll work on my vibes. All right, so it's my song. I want to specifically hear this song at sunset, in the desert, alone, with a cigarette and a beer with no label or a glass of whiskey neat that is the moment or time i want to hear the song next jeff what about you when specifically do you want
3: to hear lovesick blues well no one's going to beat that i mean you've like clearly thought about this a lot (laughs) when you really want to hear that honestly it's such a new song to me i can't really situate it anywhere in my personal history that makes a lot of sense I don't know. I think maybe in the morning. The morning seems like a good time for this song when it's quiet, sunny. I want it as a counterbalance to, like, a positive atmosphere.
0: <laughs> John, what about you? When specifically do you want to hear Lovesick Blues?
2: I want to hear Lovesick Blues at a roller rink. No oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> I know, it was so out of left field, but when I started to think about it, about a half hour after this started, I closed my eyes, I want to be on roller skates in like the 1980s in a cheap roller rink, and there is something, I can picture myself spinning around to the way the song is, it has such a fluid motion, the song, and... And Hank's delivery when he when he starts the lines all the time, like, when he goes, I'm in love, I can picture the big moment where you oh do God. one big push off You're and, and spread your arms out and coast for a while after he says that. <laughs>
3: the, the moment oh. that Josh realized this should be a video podcast. And also, yes. shout out Franklin Park, <laughs> New Jersey.
0: Yeah. <laughs> You got like a little like Donna Summer, "Love to Love You Baby," into "Love Sick Blues," and then if you're in the '90s, into "Can't Touch This," you know. Uh, <laughs> but speaking of uh, the roller rink, I think that's a perfect time to slide under the influence. Why don't we talk about the influences or just a song that you would say, listen to if you like this or what you think it influenced, influenced by John. Why don't you start us off here?
2: Um, Well, we, I mentioned, we've been talking about the vaudeville aspect of the song. I mentioned Emmett Miller already, but I read this book by Nick Toshas, who is I think my favorite rock and roll writer. He wrote an amazing book about Jerry Lee Lewis called Hellfire. And he wrote another book called Country, The Twisted Roots of Rock and Roll. And in that book, Country, he sort of sets... It's like he's one of those guys who's on the search for the true meaning of rock and roll, the true yeah. roots of rock and roll. And Emmett Miller, of all people, is this guy's obsession. He, he, he <laughs> finds it... Yeah. He describes it beautifully at one point. He says that he transcends every aspect. He says the guys from... Alabama, but he's performing in New York City. He's white, but he's performing in blackface. He's singing country. He's singing jazz. He he just seems to be the key to American music as far as this guy Nick Tosh is concerned. And um, I think he wrote a book about Dean Martin that I read
3: that is very good.
2: Yeah, Dino. It's called Dino. Right, good. You've read that? Yeah,
0: yeah.
3: Emmett yeah. yeah. Miller. suggestions. Yeah.
0: Jeff, what about you?
3: Yeah. yeah, I mean, in a sense, you can see... It's, it's one of those artists that you can say like kind of everything that has come after has been influenced by it. We're, we're kind of that far back and that. I mean, John John gave him kind of God level early on as, as, a, as a cornerstone musician. The, the ones that really jumped out when I tried to think myself through people that are like almost impossible to separate from this kind of music would be like Johnny Cash, Dylan, The Stones... Like really well situated in this history.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I like from a country perspective. I think you could go down the line like Marty Robbins, Merle Haggard, uh, Alan Jackson, in like the eighties, nineties. Chris Stapleton, I mentioned earlier, like he's kind of got how he sings a little of this in him. And, and yeah, I mean country music in general. And then I, I'll say Jimmy Rogers again, just because that's the guy that everyone was was trying to be it uh, after after he came out. Uh, until Hank came out, I guess. Then they were all trying to be Hank. So naming all those people who were influenced by him is a perfect time to go under the covers because anybody after him probably covered this song. There's like a thousand covers. So let's just name a few like that you heard that you liked or hated. Uh, Jeff, why don't you name one for us?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's almost like there's so many that you have to put them in categories. It's like there are <laughs> versions that are kind of true to the style of Hank's recording. There are kind of a little bit more, let's call them like pedal steel country versions, like the Patsy Cline version, and then a whole string of them that like resemble the Patsy Cline versions, the Loretta Lynn and um, Dolly Parton versions. I I liked the ones that managed to stay stylistically pretty close to the original best. And you just gave us a really great one from the Crickets. The one I really didn't like at all was the Little Richard one, which was just, like, too different and funky and, yeah. like, too far yeah. r- removed. It's too much soul and too much sweat. Yeah, yeah, like, the George Strait one as well was... I liked the vocal, but the pe- it was just, like, all pedal steel. It was like, do yeah. we even need George Strait here? And, and the, <laughs> the last one that really, like, kind of caught my ear just because... It, it i find him to be just the most maddening artist of the last 20 years ryan adams because he was like when he record he it is such an incredibly good cover it is yeah. like ryan adams like full like powers of his talents on display and like everything to love about him but it just like made me remember like i don't know he is one talented asshole that yeah. is for sure <laughs> Exactly. Uh
0: uh John, you got one for us?
2: I, I just concur. I loved the crickets one that you sent us. Yeah. And I don't even remember the name of that one you sent us right before
0: that one. It was horrible though. The... <laughs> That's the one that, that it charted like number three in, in the UK in, in, in the sixties. Well, it was just that
2: such typical way too tight country production. Uh. Cheese ball
0: delivery. <sighs> But no. I thought his name is Frank Ifield, and I felt like it was like a 60s Art Deco makeover version of it. That was just like, what <laughs> is this? And why did you think this was a good idea? Like
3: Bauhaus. Uh, <laughs> 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 and,
0: and yes, the crickets is like, it's, 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 it's like a lounge jet, like a jet, like a, k- t- k- t- <laughs> but it's, it, it was so Yeah, good. with a honky tonk piano. Yeah, it was great. The best, like, on the nose one, I would say, is probably Marty Robbins. I think he just does a—and I love that guy's voice. Um, and, yeah, yeah, Etta James did one very similar to Little Richard that I would that is kind of the same. It's just like, this should be better. Um, but there's a lot. I would say listen yeah. to the crickets and yeah, maybe listen to Marty Robbins. And Ryan Adams, even though he's an asshole. Uh, <laughs> all right, well, that gets us to the shoe-fitting portion of the podcast. So I will get us started here. Uh, the shoe fits like a pair of hand-tooled boots from Nudie Studios uh, with my initials <laughs> on the shafts. Just like Just like the ones Hank wore when he recorded this song.
3: Another thing that Josh has clearly been thinking about for like a decade. <laughs> 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 Josh is great at
0: the shoe thing. A lot of, lot of reps. A lot of reps. No,
3: nah, you're just kidding. Yeah, exactly. It. We shouldn't ever let you go first on that one. It's really hard to follow.
0: <laughs> uh, I, uh,
2: huge, huge clown shoes like Sideshow Bob wears. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Well, and, and don't get me, you know I love this song. You know I love Hank Williams. I'm not putting him down. Um, I think it has more to do with the Emmett Miller origin of the song, which is an absurdist 20s vaudevillian suit. Yeah. The guy, I you know, I've seen pictures of that guy, and he, his shoes are way too big, and he's wearing like a tight striped suit. Like he looks like a jester almost. <laughs> uh, right. Which there's something hilarious about this song.
0: It's like Emmett Miller and Al Jolson were just getting after it in New York at the time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sh- shoes and blackface. Um, Jeff, what, what, what about you?
3: Never mind. That's the title of the podcast. <laughs>
2: Cloud shoes and blackface.
0: It's definitely going to get us the explicit
3: <laughs> you, warning. Yeah, going to get canceled <laughs> for sure. For me, I I think it seems like Hank probably had one pair of shoes. Like he had a good pair of leather lace-ups. Just like good pair of leather lace-up boots that he wore, whether he was performing on stage or whether he was working on apparently he was a shipbuilder for a while and one of the times that he got fired from his music yeah. career during World War II his whole band goes to, to serve he can't because of his spinal condition anyway another uh, side side story but like a guy who could afford one pair of shoes and just wore that one pair of shoes to death over like three years <laughs> his
0: shipbuilding shoes I like it I like it <laughs> They're definitely waterproof in, in some way. Um, well, on that note, uh, our cover of Hank Williams and the Drifting Cowboys, Lovesick Blues.
1: I got a feeling called the blues. dream I hate to think I don't
0: The cover you just heard was performed by josh bond thanks for listening to pod gave rock and roll to you if you like what you heard please subscribe and rate on apple itunes and spotify or wherever you listen if you'd like to communicate with us you can find us on twitter and instagram under the handle at Podgave rock next week is jeff's week so jeff what will we be discussing
3: we're going to be uh filling in a Pod gave rock hole and giving a little bit of love to Billy Joel. We're going to be discussing Billy Joel's song, She's Always a Woman.
1: Can't wait! <laughs>